I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of a bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm actually really excited. I love our guests. And you'll probably recognise his voice before, well, no, you recognise his name and his voice. He's got a very distinct <laughs> voice. You know his voice because you know him off the radio, but Alex is going to tell you exactly who we've got on today. Tell us, Alex. Indeed. We have with us again today Ian Dale, who is an accomplished broadcaster, obviously. Uh, he has his own daily radio show on LBC, which means he's far more pro at this than we are. He also runs many podcasts and he's done more than all. He's the author-editor of more than 40 books, most recently The Presidents, The Prime Ministers, uh, The Kings and Queens is coming. And uh, this one we're here to talk about today. Ian, your new book is On This Day in Politics. It is. Hello. Thanks for having me on again. And um, yeah, I am recognised by my voice, which is really weird. Like you get into a taxi and the taxi driver says, you're that James O'Brien off LBC, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I've got to do you know how many taxi drivers listen to LBC when I get uh-huh. in it and they're just like listening to LBC? I'm like, oh, but it's been a while since I've been back in the UK to be able to listen to a taxi driver. But nevertheless, they still listen to you guys all the time. Well, when I first joined LBC back in 2010, James Whale used to do the programme before me and he said, I'm going to give you one bit of advice. He said, get the taxi drivers on side. They will be your biggest marketeers. And he was absolutely right. So when I interviewed the chief executive of Uber, um, fairly early on, I gave her an absolute roasting and became the immediate <laughs> hero of the black cab drivers. <laughs> you are the champion of the black cab drivers. Exactly. Brilliant. Um, this book is Britain's political history in 365 days. I This is a really good Christmas book for me because it's one of those things. And don't take this the wrong way. This is one of those ones you keep in the bathroom, isn't it? Yeah. People yeah. to dip in and out of. Because it does take each date of the year and talk about an event in British history. Uh, Alina has picked some dates out. Um, We know Alina's mad, so God knows what her logic is going to be. I know the first one's her birthday. Uh, But before we start (laughs) that, this is how do you even start breaking down how you're going to do this? Because you're looking at a massive swathe of history. And how do you decide? Because some of these are obviously about a politician, but some of these aren't. So how do you define what is a political event? Well, first of all, I couldn't believe that no one had done this book before because it's such an obvious thing to do. Dan Snow had done On This Day in History, but that was like world history. Um, so I, I I bought a book in foils back in about 1980 when it was all fusty and dusty. And um, it was a book called Post-War British Political Dates. And it was just literally a list of dates. So I got that off the shelf and I, I then th- I got up to about 80 dates where I thought, well, these ones have to be included. 
And then I spent quite a lot of time researching the others. And there are some days when, frankly, bugger all happens. Yeah. So you have to be quite <laughs> in, innovative in um, what you do. So, for example, I think it's January the 8th. That was one of those days. And I eventually found the MP. Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, when do you think the first non-white MP was elected to the House of Commons? See, I'm looking at the date, so I'm not going to answer. <laughs> let, let's just let Alina do it. Oh my god, the first non uh, it's gonna be something really embarrassing, like nineteen ninety or something. Eighteen thirty two. And it it was a mixed race slave owner who was elected as MP for Lymington. And uh, I mean the fact that he was a slave owner was uh, interesting given uh, that that he wasn't white. And um John Stewart was his name, and his father was a, a slave owner in the West Indies. And um, he was in Parliament, I think, until 1848. But nobody's ever heard of him. And you think, well, why not? He was the first non-white MP to be elected. So there's quite a lot of the book where you've got these sort of quirky facts that I found. And you, and so I write 300, about 365 words on, on each page about one event. And there was another one. Now, you probably think that the first woman to vote in a British general election was in 1918. Well, it wasn't. Mrs. Lily Maxwell voted in 1867 in Manchester because she'd been mistakenly put on the electoral register and she decided to exercise her vote and exercise it she did. So again, nobody knows this woman's name and yet she was the first woman to vote. So there's, I would say of the 365 pages, there's probably 40 or 50 or maybe more than that, that people won't have ever heard of the event that I'm talking about. So it's not just like 3rd of September 1939, Britain enters the Second World War. Obviously, you've got to put those things in. And then, of course, on the other side, there are some days when 20 things happen. Yeah. But obviously, I can only write about one. So and it's completely subjective. It's the one that probably interests me most or the one that I think um, maybe people know least about. So it, it was it was a really interesting exercise to do. It. And th then there are some days where you look up, you research them and you find that, well, in one in one resource, they say it happened on the 10th of October, and then the next one, it's the 11th of October, and then the next one, it's the 9th of October. So how do you then work out which one is absolutely right? So um, there's one, for example, Harold Macmillan uh, resigning, I can't remember, sometime in October 1963. Um, and I, I genuinely couldn't, genuinely couldn't work out which day it was. And I think, in actual fact, I've got it wrong. So that's the only mistake I've found in the book so far. You end up lobbing your own book across the room. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, well, look yeah. at it again. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe I did not think of putting the third of September on this list. <laughs> as a second world war historian i wish i'd been a fly on the wall in that voting wherever she was voting when she just flounced in in 1865 well it, it was actually quite an occasion <laughs> it, it was it was quite an occasion because she announced that she was going to do it and there were thoughts that she might be arrested um and when she walked in there was a, a bit of jury but when she actually came out of the voting booth um apparently they all broke into cheers and she she ended her life though in a in a poor house. So she she I think she as I say at the end of the piece she deserves to be better remembered. Indeed, Elena, fire off a date. Debating, debate. Okay, do you know what? Let's do the best date on that whole list, which your is best. your birthday. I'm guessing. Well, yeah, no, yes, of course, no, because I have <laughs> the best birthday. So everybody doesn't believe that I'm actually born on the 31st of October, but people like Alex could probably believe it. Call me like. 
It's probably like a witch or, or you are sort. you are dressed in black, I can see. Yeah. Wait, and I'm wearing a nightmare before Christmas t shirt, which makes it even worse. So um It is yeah. a good date to pick though, to be fair to you, because it is Britain and France take the Suez Canal. Oh. Tell us more about that. Well, it, it is one of those key dates in the last hundred years of British history. You could say that it marked the beginning of the decline of Britain. Um, and it, it it really, the fact that the Americans in the end intervened and basically told Britain and France to get out of Suez because we hadn't consulted them in advance, uh, or among other reasons, that that was really the day I think that Britain finished being a superpower because up until then it had been. You could you could argue that it was the end of the Second World War. I suppose that signalled that because we were basically bankrupt as a country. But I think Suez really, it, it, the end of empire had already begun. Um, decolonization had started by then. Obviously, India, Pakistan had been given their independence, but and, and quite a few other countries. But it really took on a, a lot of momentum after that because I think, particularly countries in Africa, thought, okay, well, now's the time for us to get our independence. So, in the rest of the 1950s and 1960s, uh, we basically lost the empire or, or gave it away. I mean, there was no great argument about it. Both political parties, Labour and Conservative. I mean, obviously, some Conservative MPs um, would have rather hung on to the empire. But there was a recognition that, that that was going to go. And it was a total, Suez was a total humiliation for British foreign policy. It was a total humiliation for Antony Eden, who up until that time really couldn't do any wrong. He He was a brilliant foreign secretary under Churchill. But he's one of those leaders who, when he got power, didn't quite know what to do with it. Um, and that often happens when you become leader of a political party after somebody else has been leader for a long time. Invariably, you're not very successful. There are lots of different examples for that. I mean, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair is one. You could say John Major after Margaret Thatcher. But um, I think Anton Eden was probably the, the biggest exemplar of that. I think as well, I, there's not a lot of good things to be said about the crown after series one and two because it just becomes yeah. appalling and tacky. But Jeremy Northam's portrayal of um, Eden was brilliant, I thought, because it really was just, you just felt sad for him, didn't you? It was like supposed yeah. to be your moment and you've just ballsed it up completely. Yeah, and he had a mental breakdown after it. Um, he was in pretty poor physical health anyway, although he, he was one of these striking looking men. I mean, if you, if you created an identical foreign secretary, you, you would you would look at Anthony Eden, he's a very handsome man, very tall. Um, Cecil Parkinson, I think, if people remember him, he, he looked a bit like Anthony Eden. And he just looked the part. And looking the part is really important for a politician. Because if you don't look the part, if people can't imagine you as prime minister, it's unlikely you're ever going to be prime minister. Neil Kinnock suffered from that. Nobody could really imagine him walking across the steps of number 10. Luckily for Keir Starmer, he does look like he could be a prime minister. I looked at my birthday and mine's just rubbish. Speaking of people that don't look like they should be a prime minister, the one for my birthday is Ian Duncan Smith becomes conservative <laughs> leader. So let's ignore well, that. Is the day well, of no, my birthday? No, no, don't 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 ignore that because that was. I mean, that shouldn't have happened that day. It should have happened um, on the 11th of September. But you know what happened on the 11th of September yeah. 2001. So they postponed the announcement. But the 13th of September was one of those days when nothing happened. So that's why I've included that in the book, because it's the only political event in Britain that I could find that had happened on that day in the last thousand years. But the day after is a good one. The 14th of September, the Duke of Wellington's death date. <laughs> 
Yeah, the Duke of Wellington, he was one of these people who um, people imagine because of all of his military victories, he was a fantastic prime minister. And he wasn't really. He was a bit of a disappointment. He, he People also think that, well, it's only this year where we, we've had three prime ministers and that's never happened before. Well, it did happen. And the Duke of Wellington was one of them. George Canning was the other. Earl Grey was the other, I think, um, back in the sort of late 1820s, early 1830s. Um, and he, yeah, he's one of these iconic figures in British history, but more for his military achievements than his political ones. Excellent. Alina, far and one. Uh, so the 1st of August, I've chosen, <laughs> got to laugh to myself, I'm so sorry. Uh, I've chosen the 1st of August just to annoy Alex. Actually, I've chosen two dates on here just to annoy Alex. So the 1st of August I've chosen because for me, it's an uh, uh, important date in my history and my study. So it was the date of the uh, outbreak of the Warsaw Uprising in 1944. But tell us what actually happened on the 1st of August. So something cheery. Well, it was the act of union between Britain and Ireland. Uh, one of the things that I learned from doing this book was how little I knew about British and Irish history, or the, the things that, that sort of, I was going to say unite them, but very few things unite Britain and Ireland, don't they? Um, and this was one of the, there, there are one or two events before this, but this was obviously a, a real landmark. And there's, I think, about 30 different pages in the book about uh, Ireland or Northern Ireland or the Troubles. And as I say, it taught me how little I knew. So it, part of the objective of doing this book is to cover issues that encourage people to read more widely about them. And I, I think Ireland is one of them. And it's actually meant that I, I've just finished doing my presidents and prime ministers podcast, but I'm now doing one on the Irish. Now, do you know what the plural of Taoiseach is? No. No. Well, it's spelled T-A-I-O-S-I-G-H. So I thought it would be Taoiseach, but it's actually Taoiseach. So I'm doing a podcast on the 14 different Irish Taoiseach since 1822. And I've just recorded the first three. And given that I know bugger all about any of them, it's it's been quite a challenge to ask intelligent questions about a, a person that you don't know much about. But it, they are absolutely fascinating. Each one I've really, really enjoyed doing. Uh, and I, I think, I don't know why in Britain we don't know more about the British Irish history, and it may be because it's pretty unbecoming. It's pretty uh, awful from a British point of view in, in in many ways. Maybe that's why we aren't taught it in schools. I wasn't taught it in school, but we had an option to do it not at BA level at university, but at master's level. Yeah, we had the opportunity to learn more about Irish history. Obviously, I went for the World War Two and Holocaust because well, that was me. But I think I would have really enjoyed it because we did a podcast, um, I think it might have been last year or the year before, where we talked a little bit about um, the 10 most, I think, shatter was it shattering events or something yeah, along those yeah. lines. Yeah. yeah. And it was really Finding a podcast, isn't there, on Irish history. But exactly. yeah, you're right. It's just like there seems to be, like when it comes to the curriculum and things like that, fashionable things and things that never even get a mention and, and sort of Britain and yeah. Ireland is one of them, isn't it? I'm going to throw a date out. Uh, I think if you ever heard the Down the Pub where we talked about the worst family in history, you'll know what I think of the Cray twins. So let's celebrate the 4th of March 1969 when the buggers were found guilty of murder. <laughs> um, I, I hate the kind of lionisation gangster hero thing around them. I think they were just mean and horrible. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It's, it's, I used to live in the East End of London um, back in the 1990s, and there was still this thing about the craze. And 
Um, I don't particularly understand it, but it's sort of anybody that has lived in the East End but isn't actually an East Ender. I, mean, I come from Essex, so I sort of I suppose I gravitate to that anyway. Um, I, I I don't quite understand this lionization of, of gangsters because well, they're, they evil, they're evil people. Yeah. Really? No. So I'm going to throw something else in here. So I used to walk the dog in the park and the guy that used to come and join our group would constantly talk about how he was involved with the craze and he was like their little runner boy because he was really young at the time when the craze were, were active. Yeah. He was their runner boy. He boasts about it all the time. So the conversation, you're right, the conversation just never stops. Yeah, absolutely. And and people might think, well, why on earth have you included the craze in the book well, about politics? though, it's a big well, difference to get them, to nail them, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. But also, um, they, shall we say, befriended, in inverted commas, um, Bob Boothby, Lord Boothby. Um, he, he had had a long-standing affair with Dorothy Macmillan, the Prime Minister's wife, but he was bisexual. And so um, nobody quite knows whether he had uh, shagged both of the Cray twins, but certainly uh, one of them. And then also they had links to Tom Dryberg, who was a very promiscuous homosexual Labour MP uh, at the time. He took a lot of risks. So um, that, that's why I've managed to squeeze them in the book. So I'm going to throw another day. This is my mother's birthday. And if my mother was listening, she's going to be very excited that I'm talking to you, first of all. She loves, she loves LBC. I'm I'm very good with middle-aged women. I don't know why this is. (laughs) Like like putty in my hands. Like catnip to them. (laughs) Mother, disregard this comment. Sorry, I'm joking. (laughs) Um, So my mum's birthday is on the 26th of March. My mother's birthday is on the 27th of March. Oh. So it's 1981 in the book and it's the SDP Mm. launched. Yeah, this is, I suppose, one of my earliest political memories um it was a really really big thing obviously it was roy jenkins david owen shirley williams and bill rogers i actually published bill rogers autobiography which i I, he didn't want to call it what i wanted to call it which was fourth among equals reference to the jeffrey archer book but he didn't like the fact that he's always seen as the least important one i said but bill you you were the others were like political stars (laughs) i'm afraid you weren't um so yeah they they, they'd launched the council for social democracy in january 1981 but hadn't quite broken with the labor party but they decided to in on the 26th of march and um launched the sdp and it it got initially it got 50 percent poll ratings obviously margaret thatcher was prime minister she was probably at the nadir of her fortunes around that time um there'd been a very uh, difficult budget um i mean it makes what jeremy hunt announced this year sort of pale into insignificance with some of the public spending cuts that, that were announced her cabinet was split she was incredibly unpopular uh, people imagine that she would lose the next election. Um, so the SDP launched as this bright new party, very centrist. So you had Labour's being seen as very extreme at the time. Um, Margaret Thatcher was seen as being extreme. So they sort of cut through the middle and became incredibly popular. And then, of course, the Falklands War came along a year later. And that, I mean, as Harold McMillan said, events did boy events. It, it completely changed uh, political history. And um, although the the SDP and Liberals, Liberal Alliance in the 1983 election did well in terms of votes, they got 25% of the vote, only 2% behind Labour. 
but they only got 20 or so seats because of the first past the post electoral system. And they never really recovered from that. They got roughly, they got a little bit less in the 1987 election. And then, of course, they split the, the two parties split apart. Um, and it's, they wanted to break the mold of British politics. That was the phrase that they always used, but they, they didn't, they really didn't achieve it. And, uh, um, they, none of them ever achieved power again. Speaking of power, there's some of them are obviously like standout international events. So let's do a couple of those. Um, I would pick the 10th of May and obviously you went for 1940, didn't you? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, I mean, that was one of those obvious ones where... Uh, the Ch Chamberlain fell and Churchill became prime minister. And there have been whole books written about the, was it five days in May? Some, I can't remember the, who, who wrote that not that long ago about the events leading up to it. And it, it was one of those events that changed the course of history. It was a sliding doors moment. If Lord Halifax had become prime minister, he was the other candidate. Um, it's highly likely that Britain would have come to some sort of, in inverted commas, peace deal with Hitler. Now, that would not have ended well, because I'm sure in the end uh, he would have been invaded. But um, Churchill was determined not to do that and uh, took power. And, um, well, as I say, the, the, the rest is history. And it, there, there are quite a few days in this book where you think, had, had this not happened or had things gone completely differently, um, the whole course of British politics, the whole course of British history would have changed and this is certainly one of them it's one of those days when one person really has a a big influence on what happens next and lots of events are sort of there are lots of people responsible for either a success or a failure but here certainly most people I mean, if you say Churchill to someone, you say, what's the first thing you think of? Oh, he won the Second World War. Now, obviously, he didn't do it on his own, but he provided the leadership that enabled the, the, the country to fall in behind him, which Halifax would not have been capable of doing. To your next date, because that's another international event, and it's one I love reminding my American friends of on Independence Day, just to wind them up. I'm a little bit nervous now. Is no, it it's okay. Bad? It's just, it's humorous more than anything. Don't worry. Okay, that's fine. So the 24th of August is my dad's birthday because I decided to put everyone's birthdays in here. So uh, tell us what happened on the 24th of August. Uh, Britain burned down the White House, um, which uh, it, it's, it, it's actually been a cause of a, a lot of 
um, I won't say humour, but I suppose I can't think of another word for it. In between British presidents and American presidents over the years, when a British, sorry, British prime minister has spoken at a dinner at the White House, they usually make reference to the fact that uh, we'd burned it down on the 25th of August, 1812. And um, effectively, Britain burned down the whole of Washington, D.C., which was a very new capital. It wasn't a big place at, at, at the time. And uh, British forces sort of entered the White House. The um, American president, James Madison, he had sort of fleed from the White House with with his wife. And they they had been intending to have a dinner there to celebrate beating the British. And uh, when the British walked into the White House, um, I think the pigs were still, the hogs were on the roast, so to speak. Um, so they, they, uh, I mean, Dolly Madison, she had packed up a lot of as many of her possessions as they could. They, they went to Maryland and when, uh, the British army burst through the doors of the White House, as I say, they found pigs roasting on spits. They ate the food themselves, drank a toast to His Majesty. Chairs were then piled up on the banqueting table and the room was set ablaze. Very special relationship there. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Let's do something more serious because Alina. Oh no, I was looking at the wrong date. Hang on. <clears throat> oh, Alina, the next date you've picked, we're going back to Anthony Eden again. Is what that have a you good thing? With Anthony Eden? No, she appears to have a bit of an obsession with him. <laughs> do you know what's really funny? Alex said to me, she goes, "Pick all of these dates. I've got the book. We'll be fine." So, <laughs> so she doesn't know what she's picked. <laughs> I have no idea what's happening here. So I'm kind of a little bit in the dark throwing dates out. So shall, I tell, shall I tell you then? Tell us what happened. May, isn't right. it? 17th, yeah, 17th of May, May, 1955, Anthony Eden gives the first party election broadcast. And of course, nowadays, we, we look at these broadcasts as sort of rather quaint because it's that they ostensibly have an interviewer. And the interviewer essentially says to Anthony Eden, so, Mr. So, so Anthony, um, what would you like to tell us? Really searching questions. Uh, and they, they developed quite quickly, though, because in 1959, Tony Benn, or Anthony Wedgwood Benn, as he was known then, he had control of Labour's party election broadcasts. And they had this rather snazzy one of um, he, the, the camera goes on to him. You can just see the back of his head sitting on a chair and he swivels round and it's all sort of quite high tech for for the day. Um, and I suppose he, he was the Peter Mandelson of, of his day. And I mean, the, in America, obviously, they're different. They're very different. They're, they're only 30 seconds long. In, in these days, party election broadcasts could be 15, 30 minutes long. And each party had them. And they were, they were generally um, the with the leader of the party just speaking to camera or being interviewed by a very friendly uh, interviewer. This, this one in 1955, that was half an hour. And it had Anthony Eden and four of his senior ministers, Harold Macmillan, Rab Butler, Ian MacLeod and Sir Walter Monckton, answering questions from 10 newspaper editors. But even the I mean, even though the newspaper editors were from sort of Labour newspapers and Conservative, they were all very, very friendly questions. So there was nothing searching about them. But party political broadcasts and party election broadcasts over the years have always fascinated me. In 1998, I compiled a two hour long video of these, which featured in the and finally slot on News at 10. And it sold 20,000 copies. 
And it actually enabled me to start my own publishing company with the proceeds from that. And then I did one of on American campaign commercials, which are light years ahead of British ones in the way that they, they're made. I think I'm going to pick a date next because you even in the introduction to this entry, you even say, why is this even significant? Why is it significant <laughs> on the 17th of July 1981 that the Humber Bridge opens? Well, the phrase pork barrel politics is usually associated with American politics. Yeah. And um, but it obviously comes here, too. And what, what pork barrel politics means is that in order to get a vote from a particular senator or congressman, the American administration would furnish that congressman's district with a lot of money to pay for some sort of new infrastructure. So therefore, the congressman could go into the next election and say, look, guys, this is what I've got for you over the last two years. Well, in 1965, uh, Harry Solomons died. Now, he was the Labour MP for Kingston-upon-Hull North, a very key marginal seat, a majority of um, a, a, a thousand, under a 1,000 in the previous five general elections. Um, now, he'd, he had won it in the 1964 election, but Harold Wilson's government had a very small majority and they couldn't afford to lose it. So what did they do? And um, they got Barbara Castle, who was the transport secretary, I think, at the time, to promise that they would build a Humber bridge uh, linking the two sides of the Humber. And so that and that's what happened. It was promised and Labour duly won the uh, won, won the election. And the bridge was opened by the Queen on the 17th of July, 1981. So quite a long time. I don't know. Why, why does it take so long to build bridges in this country? That's what, <laughs> 15 years or something. It's not that long, is it? Um, and and, and it, there is no way that you, you could not justify the amount it cost from the amount of traffic that uses it, even today, probably. So it was one of those um, moments when you, it, it was such an obvious link to draw. Well, they're only doing this to buy votes. I'm actually trying to Google how long does it take to build a bridge just as you stop talking. <laughs> so apparently Google tells us, I'm going to read this, from start to finish, a bridge project can take as little as, are you ready for this, four months or as long as a year. So yeah, that's, in, that's in China. <laughs> <laughs> they, don't, they don't have planning laws in China, so yeah. they can do them much more quickly. <laughs> So this is according to Google, and we all know as historians, yeah. political commentators, Google was always correct. Google yeah. is your friend, yes. You don't need historians anymore because we've got Google, right? And Wikipedia. <laughs> don't forget, you know, our Wikipedia historians, they know everything. Right. Next date, I know why you've picked the 14th of June. Big shipment of prisoners arrives to Auschwitz, which is what you wrote your MA dissertation on, uh, the Polish political prisoners. Uh, but the event that Ian's talking about is the complete other side of the planet. Yeah, it was the Falklands. Argentina surrendered after a three-month war over the Falklands. They invaded, obviously, on the, on the 2nd of April, 1982. And that was quite a seminal event for me because I was at university at the time. And I remember someone knocked on my door one day, sometime in April, and said, have you seen the Daily Mail today? And I said, no. And then a second person did the same thing. So I thought, well, I'd better go and get the Daily Mail. And there was my name on page two as someone who had been killed in the Falklands. Um, same age as me as well, 20. Yeah. And that really affected me because I mean, this guy, it was his name was spelled I-A-N as opposed to my spelling I-A-I-N. And he was in the Welsh Guards and he had been killed in the Falklands. And um, I remember going along to a debate 
at the university on the Falklands War, thinking it would be somebody putting the government's point of view and somebody saying we shouldn't be going there, it's all a terrible thing, war shouldn't happen in the 1980s. But instead, it was the hard left versus the soft left. And I sat there getting increasingly annoyed and thinking, well, why is nobody sort of put, why are people putting up with this? There should be another point of view put forward. So I got up and made my first speech. And that was really what set me on the road to becoming involved in politics. And it, it was... Yeah, it was quite something. I can remember the day that the Argentina surrendered, just having this huge sense of relief, I suppose, because it was a major feat for for a task force to go 8,000 miles and retake the Falkland Islands was an amazing achievement. And um, there, there were 255 British people, including Falkland Islanders and obviously service personnel who lost their lives. Um, I, I think around 600 Argentines, many of them who were on the General Belgrano, which was sunk. And you, people say, well, it was a ridiculous loss of life over a piece of rock, which was like hundreds of miles from anywhere. And if you look at it from that point of view, yes, it was. But it was it was kind of the antithesis of Suez. It showed the world that Britain was a force to be reckoned with and couldn't be just ridden roughshod over and and if you think back to the time it was at the time of the cold war where uh russia was well soviet union was riding roughshod and introducing new nuclear weapons all the time and i think there was a feeling in the soviet union that the west was so decadent that it would never stand up to any any force well i think we showed that we would and it was it was a really important um it played a really important role in the Cold War. And it also redefined our relationship with the United States because although Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were in many ways political soulmates, the Americans were not 100% behind Britain in, in this. You had Jean Kirkpatrick, who was the American uh, representative of the United Nations, arguing that America should support Argentina against her sort of so the, the, the so-called um special relationship ally britain now in the end casper weinberg of the defense secretary and ronald reagan prevailed but it was by no means certain that america would side with britain and it took quite a long time because there was a peace initiative that the secretary of state alexander Haig undertook which infuriated margaret thatcher in in many ways and there were quite a few real shouting matches between her and Haig and her and reagan just finally, before we do this, we talked about quite a lot of more modern history today, but the book does cover all the way back. And I just want to talk about two dates, because if you put them side by side, I think they're the extreme ranges of what you've covered. So the 15th of June, 1215, um, Magna Carta had to go in there, didn't it? Yes, it did. And I have to say that a lot of these more ancient dates were events that I'd heard of, but knew very little about. Um, so, yes, that that had to go in there. The first sitting of the English Parliament in 1265, that's in there. And those, those are the two earliest dates. And obviously, the, the book is skewed towards the 1920th centuries. But um, I, I tried to co put a good smattering of events from earlier centuries in as, as well, just to sort of try and make it reasonably complete. But you're, you're never... I mean, look... I'm much more interested in modern history than I am in the in the Tudor history or whatever. So inevitably, who, if somebody else had written this book, they would have chosen probably 30, 40, 50 percent of the events would have been different choices. So um, I, I don't I make no pretense that this is the definitive date choice. It's just the ones that I chose. And then on the 16th of June, um, the entry for that one is something that I like. 
everyone listening will remember if they're British, mm. certainly, which is um, Joe Cox's murder. Yes. Um, I mean, I've dedicated the book to the memory of Sir David Amos, who was a friend of mine, and I was actually due to speak at his constituency dinner the night that he was murdered. So I was very keen to include, obviously, that event and Joe Cox, because I can remember uh, just I was about to go, go on air when Joe Cox uh, was attacked and I think I had to announce her death and then interview Stephen Kinnock about it, who was shared an office with her. And I never met Joe Cox, but I knew a lot of people that knew her and had a, really, really thought she was a fantastic MP. And it must be incredibly difficult for if you, if you were a close personal friend of someone to be interviewed by any media, literally within an hour of hearing that they've been brutally murdered. Mm-hmm. And I can remember... Stephen and I, we both, well, sort of had a moment. We but we didn't break down in tears, but there was a few wobbly voices and silences. And in some ways, you think, well, that's a bit unprofessional of me as a presenter. But I think it reflects what everybody else was feeling that that this was. Bear in mind, it was only a week before the Brexit referendum, and I think initially most people thought, well. If there was a political motive to this and, and the guy was seen as sort of pro-Brexit or something, that that's the end of the Leave campaign. I mean, obviously, it didn't turn out like that. But um, there, there were, it didn't matter what your politics were, it didn't matter whether you were Leave or Remain. It was something that just united the nation in absolute horror. Absolutely. Um, Ian, this book really is an ideal stocking filler for Christmas. Um, as you say, there's so much packed in there from all about history. Uh, it is called On This Day in Politics, Britain's Political History in 365 Days. Uh, can I just say, though, that I didn't think it was possible for Nicola Sturgeon to look any more creepy, but the little cartoon <laughs> on the inside of the dust jacket is terrifying. I'm just trying to Oh, dear God almighty. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I think they piled on a few pounds on her. Actually, no, I think in <laughs> I'm thinking the person that did the cartoons, which are which are excellent all the way around the rest of the cover, um, is not a fan. Um, <laughs> I think that's probably right. It, it's funny because a lot of people I've had quite a few emails from people say, "Who are some of these people?" Uh, the, the characters, some of them are pretty obvious, but there are one or two because um, the, the public being. It publishers obviously nowadays have to be very woke, and um, initially there there were there were no um, people of colour mm-hmm. being illustrated, and I mean it is a, it is a I, I'll admit that it is a little bit of a failing of the book because there aren't uh, I mean there are obviously moments when there's been a breakthrough which I have written about. But um, it was quite difficult to think who we should put on the cover. So in the end, we put Paul Boateng on the cover, who was the first black cabinet minister in this country under Tony Blair. And then we've got um, John Cuffey, who was a trade unionist in the 1840s, who was transported to Tasmania. But obviously, I mean, he's another one of these people that nobody knows anything about, but was actually quite a significant figure at the time. So we put him on the cover, too. It's difficult, isn't it? Because if you're doing British political history, then it is heavily going to be weighted yeah. white man. So you just need to do what you can. But I don't think anyone can be like, there can't be a quota, can there? No, it's very difficult. And for example, when I did my prime ministers and presidents book, um, again, the public saying, well, you, you haven't got enough female contributors. And I said, well, in terms of prime ministers, I have tried my best to find 
women journalists, politicians or, or historians who um, are experts in particular prime ministers. But it, it, it is more difficult. Whereas on Kings and Queens, well, I mean, with your help, actually, I, I found um, huge number. There's a whole new breed of younger female historians who seem to be absolute experts on, on different monarchs throughout the ages. Well, you haven't got that on prime ministers or presidents. So you, you can't just sort of manufacture people just to meet some sort of quota. No, I mean, apologies. I have been slinging my mates at you with their special no, I've, I've, for like the last you, year. <laughs> you, you have no idea how grateful I am. <laughs> Really looking forward to it. And I promise you, uh, as we record this, I know I'm only about 24 days from deadline on the Queen Victoria. <laughs> and it's almost done. I promise you, it's almost done. Ian, thank you so much. Thank you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. 